Youth Passageways, this is Practicing Community, a podcast about who and how we are together. I'm Dane Zahorski. And I'm Marissa Taborga Byrne. Welcome, everyone, to the second episode of Practicing Community. Dane and Marissa here, and we're going to do just a quick opening and then dive right in. This is a poem that I've used before, and Marissa stumbled across again today feels perfect to set the intention and really ground in this world that we're in now just a few days past Earth Day. So wherever you are, if you can close your eyes, sit up straight. Take a few good deep breaths. And just be with us in this moment. This is a poem called Lost by David Wagner. Stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen. It answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying, Here, no two trees are the same to raven. No two branches the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Welcome. I'll pass it over to Marissa and she'll introduce our guest and we'll get started. Thank you for that, Dane. Today we're gifted with the chance to talk with Larry Hobbs. Larry has worked in a variety of both humanitarian and nature-based work throughout his lifetime. From a field biologist studying whales and dolphins, to a psychotherapist working with individual and family systems, to a teacher and naturalist leading wildlife expeditions worldwide, to years of rites of passage training at the School of Lost Borders. Larry has dedicated many years to the 4-H Challenge Program embedded within the Washington State University's Extension Program with a vision of making rites of passage available to all 4-H youth. Although still conducting river dolphin research in Southeast Asia and teaching and leading natural history trips all around the world, Larry's passion rests in guiding rites of passage and in sharing his knowledge of the ways we interrelate with and understand the natural world that supports us all. A big welcome to you, Larry. So great to be with you again so soon. You've led such a full life. And to start, can you trace for us the path through your life and how you first encountered the work of nature-based rites of passage? Well, my my father was in the Forest Service when I was born. And... uh, I spent a lot of time in the mountains when I was a kid with my father, with my family. And all I ever really wanted to do in life was to be able to eke out a living camping or being outdoors. That's all I ever really wanted to do. Turned out that the easiest way to do that after going to school was to become a wildlife biologist. So I spent time studying whales and dolphins and porpoises and manatees and sea lions and polar bears and all the marine mammals. I love the ocean, love the desert, but there was always more. There was always this yearning for more. So I uh, ran into a man by the name of Gregory Bateson, probably I think will be known as certainly one of the greatest, if not the greatest thinker of the 20th century, because he introduced systems, the paradigm that we need to be shifting into, the interconnectedness, the interrelationship piece that's been missing from our culture. So Gregory was a huge influence on me. I spent seven years in and around issues of how do we be in this planet in a good way. And uh, I first met him in Hawaii where I was studying dolphins. I uh, spent two years studying wild dolphins in Kalakakua Bay and the big island of Hawaii. And some of the things that we had to do and the practices that we had to do, like we had to kill one to take it for food, just darn near killed me. And every time I'd have a question, I would go to Gregory because he was the first person who ever made any sense to me. I, as a uh, teenager, I was, it was pretty lost. 
and I found alcohol and drugs. Uh, the police found me. <laughs> I found stealing cars was a kind of an interesting thing to do, much more interesting than anything else living in the city. So the, there was this problem of Larry that started when I was just very, very young. Uh, problem to my family, problem to the police, to the schools, to the church, because I was lost. And no one seemed to be living in the same world that I lived in, except when I was out in nature. And that was always a real home for me. So I worked in, with marine mammals. Uh, my graduate work was putting radio transmitters on gray whales and spent uh, three years down in the lagoons in Baja California studying them and behaviors. And after that, because the technologies really helped understand what the animals were doing, I went crazy. I, there wasn't a safe marine mammal in the world from all putting radio transmitters. And we just didn't really know much about these animals. And, and I loved having real honest this data. And I loved kind of being a cowboy, you know, going out there, how do you catch a gray whale? Well, you lasso them, you know. So uh, a lot of stories like that put the, the first uh, radio transmitters on polar bears, uh, satellite transmitters, uh, trying to figure out because of the oil drilling and the loss of denning areas and uh, higher to so put radios on them. That was wonderful, but it was, there was just this, this missing piece. And uh, I was in therapy myself. I was uh, looking deep inside and finding a hollowness and an emptiness there. Uh, so I decided that I would quit the whole world of marine biology and, and wildlife biology and going to the world of psychology. And I thought, because I'd come to a very high position in government research, I had a lot of money in my research account, but there was still this problem of Larry and this emptiness. So I decided I would become a therapist because I thought they must know something. And then I went through my whole training and was working in the field. And I finally realized that that I still didn't know anything. So I decided I'd become a teacher of therapists and then maybe I'd know something. And I became a teacher of therapists and, and something cracked inside of me because I still didn't know anything. You know, and, and years went on and uh, I decided that there were other things to be done. And along came a work taking people all over the world as an expedition leader and uh, leading expeditions to the Arctic and the Antarctic and the Amazon and all through Indonesia and so forth. So there was a lot that led up, but there was still that emptiness inside and this problem of Larry that everybody tried to solve, including me. And then I got a call from a friend of mine, Wally Herbert, who's the greatest explorer, polar explorer ever been on the planet. We were very close and his daughter had died tragically. And he gave me a call because He'd gone around trying to find some healing, and he ended up with Stephen and Meredith in Big Pine, California. And he went out on this crazy thing called a vision fast. And he called me the day he came out of four days and nights fasting alone in the wilderness. And he said, uh, you got to meet Stephen Foster, and Stephen Foster has got to meet you. And so I uh, called up Stephen, and I said, well, uh, you know, I, Wally says I got to come down there, so I guess I do. I trust him. Uh, I trusted him mostly because he knew that I didn't want to do some Indian wannabe thing. I wanted something that was really solid, really grounded. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know. I'd never fasted before. I knew nothing about what they did. But Stephen said, well, there's a, a two-week training coming up, but it's full. And besides, you, you, you really need to have fasted before. And I said, well, that's great. I'll be there. And I just showed up anyway because something called me, something deeply called me. And I went. And uh, did this crazy thing with Stephen and Meredith, and it was the first time actually that Stephen had this congenital lung disease, and he was he had to be taken out off the mountain. But when they told the story, something something really significant happened. Uh, I came back with my story and I told it. And I was still hoping to have the problem of Larry solved, and uh, they didn't. They didn't solve the problem, but somebody had made a tape, one of the other participants, uh, a tape of my story and their mirroring, and they gave it as a giveaway. And so I, I took that, and I was driving home up 395, 
And I was really pissed off because Stephen and Mary, they'd come down there, I'd spent two weeks, I'd spent money, and they hadn't solved the problem with Larry. And I was furious. I wanted my money back. Uh, that was done with all this woo-woo crap. And uh, I put that tape into my tape deck on my truck in Reno and listened. And I wept all the way to Susanville, which is about two hours away. And um, what I realized later was that they were the first people who ever really didn't try to fix the problem with Larry. They actually listened to what I had to say and listened to my story. And that shifted everything in me. And that started me off on this other road to, to doing these rites of passage. I still do it. I still lead eco tours all over the world, but uh, my passion lies in working with people in the wilds. Thanks, Larry. That vision of you in the truck is really stirring in me. Um, and I want, I want to chase that tale, but maybe before we do, let's ground a little more. I think building up the foundation of some of these meaty concepts feels important. Um, one of the things that I've learned in this field over the past few years, and I think that is applicable kind of across fields, is that in order to really, truly communicate, we have to define our terms. Uh, you know, we have to know what we're talking about. And so I wonder if you would discuss what you think about when you use words or think about words like nature or rites of passage. You know, what do they mean to you in specific? And what are your experiences of them? And how have they changed over the course of the time that you've been doing this work? Really good questions. Um, because uh, the significant parts of my childhood were in nature, I mean, I lived in Los Angeles area, so there was not much there except in the alleys where I <laughs> mostly caused trouble, but nature can be in an alley. Uh, it was a refuge for me, actually, because it wasn't a place where everything was cultivated and uh, made neat. It was a place where there was some chaos, where there was a chance for interesting and different things to happen. But there is something that happens in nature, something that happens in ceremony in nature that changes everything. And I think it's what Stephen called the big lie, and that is that we are not connected to the natural world, that we are somehow separate and different. And that is the big lie. And it's uh, to create real change in social justice, uh, real change in environmental relationship, it's going to take that shift to our thinking that we're separate from nature to being part of nature. There is no separation, period. And when I, when people who go out into nature and spend time there, especially alone fasting where there's nothing else to do, something shifts inside of us. A lot of it feels pretty mysterious to me because I'm a male and I'm a scientist. I, I want to explain these things. And I really can't, but I do know from my own experience and experience of hundreds of people that I've been privileged to work with that something fundamental shifts inside of us. And it may be that uh, we have a lot of kids that come and, and they may go back out uh, into their environment and they may be thrown in jail again or something, but something has changed inside them. And they come back oftentimes. So they, oh, <laughs> I didn't quite get it that time, but I get that there's something really essential to me that I need to do. You know, we always tell people that the incorporation, that is bringing this back into your life, takes about a year. But of course, it can be longer or shorter. But you come to the forks in the road along the way in that incorporation time, that time of bringing these experiences of nature back into your life, where you just have to make a choice. Sometimes you'll choose to do things the old way, sometimes you'll choose to do it the new way. And knowing that. There's no right or wrong way to do that. Just, you're just making choices. Over time, you just become more part of this infinitely interconnected, beautiful world. So especially as I get older, you know, I, it becomes a part of the mystery, that there's a giving in to the mystery that is really required to live our part, that part of, of, of this system of nature that's us. 
And that's what happens out there, whether you like it or you don't like it or you understand it or you don't understand it, it does happen. And it happens over and over and over. And it is precisely the change that I think that we need as a species if we're gonna survive on this planet. So what I hear you say is what fundamentally shifts is this idea of connection. And that idea of connection provides an avenue now to walk in making decisions that lead to further connection or that continue with the disconnection. Is that right? Exactly. Because we're shifting in our culture. We have to. It's required of us at this point to shift from a kind of linear relationship to the world where A leads to B, which leads to C. And it's, it's, it can be fairly well-known path, but what we need to switch to is a relational world because that's the way the world actually is. And we need to learn how to fit into that infinitely interconnected relational world uh, rather than this idea that somehow we're separate, we're different, and that we can do whatever we want and ignore the consequences of an interrelated world. And there's no place better to see that than to actually go and be a part and observe ants or birds or weather or those pieces where we can experience the infinitely connective relational world, as you put it. And so the fasting, can you talk a little bit about how that helps to dive into nature? Well, we're always so busy in our culture. We're even just around food. We're thinking about it. We're buying it. We're preparing it. We're eating it. We're cleaning up after it. Then we're thinking about the next meal. And when you take that away, just that alone, it's terrifying. And then you take away the telephone and the, and the books and the television, the, all the media, all of that stuff. You take that away. And it's even more terrifying with kids or adults. When they go out, oftentimes, oh, this is great. I'm going to get away from all this stuff. This is going to be fantastic. And then two hours go by, and I say, oh, my God. You know, I've never been alone. We are never alone in our culture. We're doing something. And the fasting allows not only the spaciousness and the terror to come. You've got to meet that terror. And it turns out that the terror is me. It's not, it's not out there. It's actually me. And when you get through that, and then all of a sudden you actually start seeing and relating. If you got, I, I just finished my own fast, uh, walking fast on the San Pedro River in Southern Arizona. So I was walking in the river a lot of the time and with the river. And the metaphors that come out are endless whether it's a river or watching an ant or a sunrise or whatever it is that's in front of us, instead of watching it, you are part of it. And that changes everything. I really appreciate how you brought in food and how much our lives are kind of built around it and the various unspoken ways we organize in relation to it. I've often seen young folks that I've worked with in teaching meal preparation as a life skill kind of have their minds blown when they realize how large a force it actually is, especially within a community context. Uh, I also really appreciate how you break down fasting into its component parts. I think it, it tends to be one of the more accessible paths to that liminal space and a pretty familiar one to, to a lot of the folks in our Youth Passageways community. You know, but for those not familiar with the various approaches to passageways, it feels pretty important to take just a second and acknowledge that although it's an incredible practice, it, it also stands within a huge constellation of ways that various cultures have been with and are with wild places. Following that thread and, I don't know, maybe weaving it in a bit more, a question that naturally arises is, why for you this practice uh, in this way with these people? Uh, those being the School of Lost Borders, 4-H, the WSU Extension Program. Why is this the practice uh, that you've dedicated your life to? Well, partly it's just because that's what, it, uh, <laughs> what Great Spirit or whatever showed me. When I went out with Stephen and Meredith, after, after I, had, I had done that initial two-week training, I went back and did a month-long training. And then when Stephen was dying, I actually moved to Big Pine to 
help with 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 his dying and also help carry the school through the transition from uh, kind of a ma and pa outfit to a, a little bit more of a of a business under uh, Joseph and and Emerald and. Everything that was done in that ceremony made sense to me. It fit into places inside of me that had been empty. Um, I had to learn about doing ritual and ceremony. I didn't know anything about that. And I found that as I entered into that ceremonial world, that magic things happened. That uh, That instead of seeing something from the outside when it's held in a ceremonial context i am part of it so i'm part of of nature i'm part of this whole magical thing that can happen when things are held uh, in ritual space i had been a therapist a family therapist and 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 it did fine and there's certainly a place for that but there's also uh, something fundamental that's missing in the office space, the, the separation from the natural world that, that, that change can happen, but it's very difficult for healing to happen in the, in the therapeutic relationship. It can, but that's not the focus. The focus is, like you've got a 1956 Chevrolet and it's not running right, you just kind of change the spark plugs and you know uh, flip a switch or two, and you're going to be—it's all going to be good. That's not really the way healing happens. I, I was very lucky while I was working as a therapist in Seattle to belong to a group of people who wanted to specifically bring healing into the therapeutic uh, relationship. And we spent five years together every Wednesday morning uh, exploring that. How can you bring healing into this, into uh, the therapeutic relationship? And I think we made some real headway because we looked at it as, as a system. We we're part of the family system. We're part of a social system. And, and uh, we actually wrote a, a, a short book out of that. Uh, but it was still missing that that what felt like it feels and felt like a, an essential component to me, which is actually being out there in nature where you're faced with your own fears and you have to make decisions based on that. When the when the you hear the, the growling in the middle of the night or the twigs breaking near your camp, uh, you have to you have to respond to that and you have and you have the opportunity because you're in a little bit of an altered state not a lot but a little bit of an altered state you have the opportunity to actually watch yourself and watch your what you do and then the the, the biggest magic for me in the in this particular approach is really twofold one is setting an intention a clear intention going into to the uh to the, the, the sacred or, or the uh, liminal space. Setting an intention is critically important uh, because it sets into action things, again, that are unexplainable to me, uh, where over the next year after you've done this ceremony, the world will present you over and over and over with situations that will test your intention that will say am i the person that i used to be or am i this person that i'm claiming this intention that i have critically important for transformation for healing um, the other part of it is the the hearing listening and speaking the story that you have and having it mirrored back to you in a good way where the mirroring is not fixing you. Uh, my dear friend Joseph tells people, and I've begun to tell people when they come to the ceremony, 
you're not broken when you get here and you're not going to be fixed when you leave because it's not about fixing you it's about healing which is an inner process and um so having the story mirrored back that's the magic that happened to me with stephen and meredith they just mirrored back my story they just told me what actually happened out there because when you're in your story you don't know what's happening because mm -hmm. <laughs> you're in it but a skilled person can reflect that back to you without tarnishing without changing it much you know a pretty clean mirror and just being seen just being witnessed is critically important to healing in the 1980s when i was training to be a family therapist the uh university of washington was very involved in trying to quantify how therapy works so that we could make it into a science and uh which is an important piece. There are things about that that we need to know. And there was one study done where they uh, had people in crisis talking to a therapist, to a, a, a person of the clergy, to a neighbor next door, and a few other people, family members. And what they found was that the, the, that the, the, the healing uh actually it was about the same and the, the underlying conclusion was that it's witnessing that's important to us just being witnessed not being fixed not being changed but just being witnessed and the change in the healing will actually emerge out of that organically we want to know exactly why it is and what we do and how it happens and when this happens i'll do this we want that mechanistic way because that's where we are in our culture and have been but the world is asking much more of us now the world is asking us to trust the unseen and trust forces that we don't understand and in nature one of the things I used to teach a course and called uh, Science as a Way of Seeing, and I took uh, undergraduates out and, and uh, kind of artsy folks and liberal arts people and uh, who hated science or were scared of science. And, and we'd uh, do all these kind of crazy things in nature. And uh, it was interesting to see that I got a, a comment from one of the students one time in an evaluation that said, well, I was taking a course in spirituality and I was taking a course in science and I got more spirituality in my course in science uh, than I did in my course in spirituality. And we talked about it and it was that, that we really treated the whole system systemically and science is a good thing and spirit is a good thing and psychology is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, um, really an important piece that, that we that we be in the outdoors, that our stories get heard and that they get mirrored and that we go with an intention. I love that you spoke specifically to the idea that nature is asking more of us and that there's a response there, which actually feels like a perfect segue to come back to one of these other threads, the wafering fast that you and Marissa have both just experienced. I wonder, Marissa, if you would lay some groundwork and context and offer a little bit about your own story, just coming back from Arizona, and then we can just dive into whatever waters arise from there. So I was fortunate enough just last week to spend some time on the San Pedro River by way of a dream of a man named James Mahoney. His dream was to have a fast, a vision fast, but a walking vision fast, much like the walkabout. And Stephen Little, who's been mentioned a lot today from the School of Lost Borders, was also really interested in this way of what it is to go out on a journey. During a vision fast, the fasters or participants are alone and often have one home base that they can choose to venture out from and then come back to. Whereas in this wayfaring fast, the fasters walked over 15 miles in about four and a half days along the San Pedro River. I assisted on this fast, helping hold the base camp and got some precious time to connect with the nature there coatis and vermilion flycatchers and the white-tailed deer, as well as the beautiful flowing desert river. 
So for you, Larry, what did the traveling inspire or invite in a different way than, for instance, a specific place that you would have been at? And how did the movement inspire a difference in the fast for you? Well, all of the vision fasts are about death and rebirth. That's what a rite of passage is. It's actually a death to the old way, to the old position in society, whatever that is that you're there to be claiming, to be making an intention around. It is a death and rebirth. So the underworld journey that Stephen loved and did a number of times with people was really a different kind of manifestation of that death and rebirth. The river, as a metaphor, was fabulous. I mean, when Stephen did it, he didn't do it on a river. He did it up in the desert, California desert. But the movement itself mirrored the movement in life for me. And there really was no way to avoid the fatigue, the times when, because fasting and walking in and around and above and through the river, there was no way to avoid, at least for me, the thoughts of almost paralleling getting older, getting tireder and tireder, less and less energy as it goes along. How am I going to cope with this? What is nature showing me along this river that can help me go gracefully through this life. I mean, the Buddha, you know, aging, sickness, and death, that was, that was the deal. And we're all faced with that. And yet we avoid that. And until we can embrace that fairly fully, we're not going to live fairly fully. You know, that sense of moving through to a new home was quite different from staying in a home and going in and out of it, perhaps, during the day but very, very parallel to the movement in life. Subtle, but very profound for me. There's just so much there, um, especially the way that your imagery of the river seems so connected to the work of another one of our elders, one of the Youth Passageways guardians, Gigi Coyle, and her work with Kate Bunny, as well as many others on the Walking Water Pilgrimage, uh, where they walk from the Owens Valley watershed all the way into Los Angeles and to be in that journeying and interacting with the water uh, and to invite some of the same ideas and reflections that I'm hearing you describe. I think what's most exciting for me as someone who's just learning about this new way of being with fasting, or at least one of many other ways, is how pertinent and clearly connected it feels as a response to our changing world. You know, that world that's in kind of the grips of the liminal space of climate change and the newly growing population of climate refugees, you know, those wayfarers that have been robbed of where they're from, who've been separated from their homes through violence or left as the only way to survive and protect their families. We're all in this process of trying to understand what it means to be from a place and what it means to be amongst many other places that feel connected, you know, to be indigenous or settlers, to seek or to root in one's home place. And there's so many different threads that all feel like they're being woven together. So it kind of brings me to want to ask, you know, in being in this this wayfaring fast, being with the river, being with the natural world, you know, to what extent did that larger exterior world, you know, not necessarily the problem of Larry, not, not your inner world or even your immediate experiences, but, you know, the relevance and urgency of what is so clearly happening uh, to us all right now. How did those fit into your time? Like, or or did they, or were they were they kind of buffered? So I would just I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did set an intention before I went on the walk, and the first piece of it was that I walk in prayer for wisdom, and it wasn't so much personal wisdom as wisdom that we need to move forward, wisdom. I mean, it, the word could have been love or compassion or inclusiveness, but I use the word wisdom because I think of wisdom as being a knowledge of the system that we're in rather than just the pieces of it. And so I was walking in that sense of prayer or open reception 
<laughs> to whatever messages the river was giving and the natural world was giving. And the metaphors were endless. The main one was that we really need to pay attention to what's right in front of us. I can get lost, you know, in worry and fear. Fear is one of the things that's really plaguing, you know, all of these issues that we're facing are fear-based. doesn't matter which, you know, you're talking about climate change, environmental destruction, social justice. It's all about fear, gender equality, racial equality. It all comes from fear, and the fear often is somewhere down the line. It's not actually what's happening right now. What's happening right now is just what's happening right now. And the river was great for that because I could get all lost in thoughts and emotions around what's going to happen around the next bend, or what is that sound in the night, or what's going to happen. But it's always out in front of me. And one of the really important messages was, no, you just need to take this next step. And you need to take it in a prayerful or receptive manner. So for me, it was totally relevant to dealing with all these polarities and differences that we're facing in the world today. Most of that is based on fear. We've got to learn to overcome that. And part of the overcoming of it is realizing that we're all together in this, you know, every breath we take as 500,000 molecules that Mozart breathed, you know, or, or the person next door breathed, you know, at that level, we're, we're all in this together. And when we can see that clearly, that it's just what's right in front of us that's important and needs to be dealt with, a lot of that fear just goes away. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was metaphor for exactly what's being called for in these times, these very challenging times. I live in an area where the political climate is quite different from my own political views. And for me to listen carefully rather than respond and reject what people say because they don't agree with me or I don't agree with them, it's an extraordinarily difficult practice. I get challenged or hurt or scared, and then I don't listen. But if I can just go with the river, go, <laughs> go with that flow, then it's actually beautiful. I just talked with some one of my buddies who's out where I live, who's a big gun advocate, an NRA person, you know, asked him about this deal with the kids. And he said, oh, these kids are just being brainwashed by their parents. That's why they're showing up. And I said, really? That brought up some feelings. And instead, I just, I said, well, what do you think the problem is, you know? Because he was saying, it's not guns the problem. So I said, what is it? And he said, well, he said, well, you know, it's that our values, our whole system is a mess. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> you know, to, to just listen and to hear that wisdom out of this guy that I would have just fought with mm -hmm. and got nowhere, just keep the polarization going. But instead, I heard this beautiful wisdom, you know, because, yeah, it is. The guns are just pieces of metal. You know, we've lost the values that value each other in human life. And that's something that can be regained. And I hear it from all the people that go out questing pretty much, but especially I hear it from the kids. You know, they really get that we're interconnected and how important that is. So one of the ever-present questions in our incorporation work for us as guides or mentors is this piece of self-care. And a question that comes up again and again is how do we maintain good self-care in these times when we're often giving so much? I've heard from you that you do a yearly renewal fast. What does that do for you with your walking intention? And what other ways do you find that you are able to incorporate caring for yourself while caring for others? <laughs> That's such a good question. It's so difficult to, to do, but it's essential. Yeah, I do go out on a fast every year or two sometimes. I host a renewal fast for Pacific Northwest Guides every two years, and that's certainly part of it. I think that being in connection with other guides is really important for me. You know, I'm very lucky in that I live out in the mountains where I can walk out my back door. And yesterday I walked, uh, there's a river, beautiful, the Cleon River is uh, about a half hour walk out my back door. So I was walking and I saw a 
deer. And then there was another deer. And it turned out there were about 12 deer that I've been trying to become part of this group of deer for a couple of years now. And pretty standoffish as I hadn't seen them this year, but just to be quiet and still and stay there. And within 20 minutes or so, they were within a couple of feet of me. They haven't let me touch them yet, but I'm working on it. But to go out into nature on a daily basis for me is really important. And again, I'm so lucky that I live there, but just looking out the window here and the Frosythia is, you know, blooming and their parks and things. To get out is critically important to me, as well as to surround myself with like-minded people as much as I can, uh, both in the environmental work that I do, but also in, in the rite of passage work. I spoke with a number of people on my way over, driving over here to Seattle today, uh, other people in this, that do this work, or get that kind of support, because it's not part of the mainstream. We're not, <laughs> we're kind of thought as the crazy edge, you know, the red-haired stepchild you know, of the world, and it's important that we be able to get support from one another. I would say that that's really been the driving motivation behind starting these conversations in the first place. I don't know who first said it in this network, but this idea of a community of practice has really been at the center since I've known Youth Passageways. You know, what it looks like to be fallible and learning how we do it and failing together so that we can succeed together. So I guess as we begin to transition towards closing out our conversation today, I've really just got one more question. I think Marissa may have one or two more it was really interesting to hear just a minute ago you speak to a few different words. I think the one that is really resonating right now for me is love. That's a place I tend to always come back and gravitate towards, especially in the framework of rites of passage and these conversations. Uh, I've been a fan of the theologian Teilhard de Chardin for a really long time. And one of the things that he talked about was that love was the most natural manifestation of human behavior that connected us to the world. And that when we show love to each other, when we practice that, that intention setting, vulnerability, openness, that we were in so many ways being the feedback loop of nature coming back to itself. And so I guess I wonder in your experiences with young people and also with adults, do you see that practice of vulnerability, openness, and love at the center? Or how would you describe what comes out of these experiences uh, that you have and have facilitated for so many years now? And kind of when, when they, when we come back out of them, how are those experiences reflected or returned by the communities that are calling us back? Well, the image that comes as I listened to you talk was uh, the youth when they come back out of, you know, three days and nights out in the wilderness alone. And there's something in their eyes. There's something in the way they are that I'm in tears every time. I just weeping when I welcome them back into the circle. And it's true for the adults too. But some about the kids, and invariably it comes up when they're telling their stories. You know, these are teenagers. I mean, I was one. Well, I, I didn't have a place to experience these things, but they always talk in gratitude for their parents. And it is not prompt. This is just what happens out of the ceremony, out of this time alone. They just realize how grateful they are for schools and parents and things that a lot of them are fighting against. <laughs> and if left to their own devices, they end up being in the same kind of mess polarities that we get into. But something shifts. Something happens out there. And our hearts are open. When I come out of uh, just this recent fast, but every time I come out of a fast, I end up with this kind of time of just openness and vulnerability that is is almost kind of scary. You got to shut down, you know, to survive in this culture. You really do. Just uh, driving here, coming over the pass into Puget Sound Basin, I can feel myself closing down because there's so much. And we, you know, end up having to protect ourselves. And the ceremony opens it up so that we have, that seed has been planted. Mm -hmm. No matter what happens when people go back, that seed has been planted. Sometimes people ask me, well, you're sending these kids back to the same mess they came from. Is that really an ethical thing to do? And my response is, I know that there's more and I can't just do nothing. And I. 100% believe 
that the seeds have been planted, they've been germinated, and that they're going to sprout, and that we can't and should not be able to control that. <laughs> That's part of the process of just emerging out of who we are, which getting full circle back to what you said about, about love and interconnection. That is our ground of being. Like me coming over into the city, we protect ourselves from that because it's too vulnerable, it's too scary to just be out there. The fasting time gives us an opportunity to have at least experience that in our life. And we may go whole up again, but reminds me of a story that Stephen told me one time. They had this kid who was terrified of the dark, absolutely terrified. But he went out there and he did his three days and nights alone in the wilderness and something shifted inside him and and he went back home and they didn't hear anything and about six months later in the san francisco chronicle there was this article about the cat burglar this was a burglar that went out at nighttime and was stealing electronics all over marin county up north of san francisco and so the police couldn't find this person it was stuff disappearing and finally somebody saw a person going up into a cave on mount tamalpais carrying some electronics and they told the police and the police got it and it was this kid so we don't know what's gonna happen you know my fantasy is that he'll be thrown in juvie and then he'll finally get it and he'll take this work to, to other people you know because he'll get it the seed has been sown no matter what it looks like at this point i have seen it over and over with kids the kids come back because we've been working in the public schools for a number of years, been able to have the opportunity and last to come to the graduations in, in the school district, the kids will stand up and say what's happened to them out of this experience. And it does break it down so that they can, they can experience that interconnection. Thank you for that. And thank you for those stories. As we're closing here, nature connection looks like so many different things. It looks like eight shields programs that are sprouting up all over the United States. It looks like medicine walks. It looks like fasts. It looks like an intentional walk in the park. Our conversation today has heavily focused on the vision fast, and that's one way of connecting. However, nature connection can start with something as simple as a different way of looking at things a witnessing through sitting with a flower in its scent, listening to and watching the birds. This can begin to open our connection, open our hearts, open our minds, open ourselves to the connection that you spoke of, Larry. What nature offers is connection to a broader scope of life, to where we came from and to right where we belong. And we thank you, Larry, so much for spending this time with us. Thank you. It's been really a pleasure to listen to your stories and to hear the wisdom of your own story and how you now lead others to this work. Here we are in my home in Seattle with birds flying around, all part of the more than human world too. So before we close, are there any final words you have, Larry? Well, I would just love to speak just a bit about the different ways in which this connection can happen. Because Stephen and Meredith were, were always teaching us just the bare bones, and they always encourage us, make it your own, whatever that is. I've been lucky enough in training people for many years to encourage people to do that. And we wrote a paper recently where we documented there have been 50 youth organizations in the Pacific Northwest that have been directly affected by people who have come and trained with us just to do this kind of work, but they've taken it back into their workplace innumerable different ways from a, a walk with a client in the park or a, um, one woman's working with kids who are having really rough times within the public school system and taking them out, and they walk with an adult in the woods because they can't be left alone. There's infinite ways to do this, and I would encourage everyone to, to find their way, whatever that is, but that the work itself, the connection with nature, I think is critical for our survival as a species on the planet, and I, I mean that seriously not metaphorically that we are at a crisis point and if we don't reconnect with nature and find our place in nature we're in deep trouble and soon yeah so encouraging everyone to <laughs> do whatever you do go out and get with nature <laughs> yeah.
Thank you, Larry. And to end today's episode, we have a quote by Thomas Berry. Our relationship with the earth involves something more than pragmatic use, academic understanding, or aesthetic appreciation. A truly human intimacy with the earth and with the entire natural world is needed. Our children should be properly introduced to the world in which they live. So may those introductions and the deepenings be known. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. joining us on this month's episode of Practicing Community. We're excited to announce that you can now find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. Yahoo! We'd love to know what you think if you have the time, so please feel free to leave us a review or to reach out. And you can locate further information about Nature Connection on our website at www.youthpassageways.org. There you will find programs and Youth Passageways partners who are doing this kind of work globally, as well as blogs and a resource list. And following, Larry has more to say about the 4-H Rites of Passage program that can be adapted and brought to any 4-H agent across North America. One of the wonderful things about working within the 4-H program is that it's just so America. It is just uh, part of the heartland of the American way. Our website, for instance, is on the Washington State University server. And so anytime that people have questions, uh, teachers or administrators or parents or community people, we can refer them to the Washington State University website, which is gives a lot of credibility to the work that we're doing. And it's also true that every county in the United States has a 4-H agent associated through agriculture, through the university, the agricultural university in the state. And anyone can start a 4-H club out of anything. It can be a church group or a boys and girls club or any group can be made into a 4-H club, and then you have access to the 4-H structure. And that includes insurance, for instance, wilderness insurance for new guides. That's one of the reasons I went to 4-H. It also includes insurance for the participants at 25 cents a shot for kids. We do have criteria. You have to have done your own training fast, and you have to have done a mirroring workshop, and you have to have done a base camp assisting and co-guide with a trained guide, which is all stuff that many people have already done, then you can go to your 4-H agent in any county in the United States and start a program. We have all the literature. It's all digitized. And we also are working on a mentor's guide that has severance exercises for community members to mentor kids, as well as incorporation exercises and what to do in incorporation. So that's all available uh, through our 4-H program. Yee-hee.